You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, Father Hezekiah. Hello, Annie Mitchell. Blessing to be here with you on this 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time, otherwise known as... I believe the fourth Sunday past Pentecost. I think this is the fourth Sunday. Yes, yes. Yeah. So anyways, the the reason we keep pointing this out, I know it's like a broken record every week that Father Hezekiah is not a big fan of, quote, ordinary time counting because it really isn't all that helpful. You know, um, this time is after Pentecost and the readings really reflect this. One of the things about the new lectionary was that it was done in haste, Okay. And they've had to do some, you know, revisions here along the way, because sometimes things didn't work out as, as, as well as they should have. Well, anyways, one of the blessings that it was done in haste is that, you know, it's hard to invent an entire new lectionary. And there's a lot of the readings from the old lectionary that ended up influencing the new lectionary, as you would expect. And so, so we still are in this time of Pentecost and the old way of counting this, the weeks following Pentecost not so much an ordinary time, but the time of Pentecost in which we live in the light of the fire of the Holy Spirit, which descended upon the apostles. And, and now we're meditating upon the church's mission, specifically in the mission given the apostles, but then by extension, then our mission as we enter into their mission liturgically. Yeah. Or the liturgy yeah. is our entrance center. So anyways, that's why. So in this time of Pentecost, where these readings really reflect that reality, about this new life the church is, be, is receiving. Here are those uh, themes, especially in the first reading about this infant nursing, if you will, at the breast of Jerusalem, which is kind of a strange image, but we're going to hear this in light of the newly baptized on, on Pascha, on Easter, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. But let's go ahead, Annie, and give our readings for the week. All right. For the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time, our first reading is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66, verses 10 through 14. Our responsorial psalm is Psalm 66. The gospel for this weekend is from the gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And then we skip a few verses and go to verse 17 through 20. And the epistle is from St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. You ready to jump into Isaiah, Father Hezekiah? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Isaiah 66. We're starting at verse 10. Thus says the Lord, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad because of her, all you who love her, exalt 
Exalt with her, all you who were mourning over her. Oh, that you may suck fully of the milk of her comfort, that you may nurse with delight at her abundant breasts. For thus says the Lord, lo, I will spread prosperity over Jerusalem like a river and the wealth of the nations like an overflowing torrent. As nurslings, you shall be carried in her arms and fondled in her lap. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. In Jerusalem, you shall find your comfort. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bodies flourish like the grass. The Lord's power shall be known to his servants. Yeah. So, Father, this is, I believe, the final chapter of Isaiah. So, of course, we always want to get our context right. So in terms of understanding the context, could you just talk about what is the theme of this last part of Isaiah? Well, Annie, like all the prophets, first of all, this Isaiah depends on your scholar is going to be cut up into different pieces saying that there's different, even people might say that they're different authors, but really just different themes because the prophet is, is prophesying, first of all, that's the first question is when's this guy alive right? when was Isaiah living and then mm-hmm. from there you can kind of understand a little bit more so let's 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 just start right there by going to, back to the beginning of the prophet Isaiah which is our always our habit mm-hmm. right and you're going to see the a great great figure who lives during this time you see chapter one verse one the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem okay so stop for a second Remember, there's a division between Israel, the northern 10 tribes, and Judah. So we're talking about just, he's, so Isaiah is going to preach to the south. Why? Because the north has already fallen. Right? Yeah. The, north, the north's been wiped out by the Assyrian army. Well, wiped out, repopulated, conquered. Mm-hmm. And so in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and the great... Wait sinless king hezekiah <laughs> that's right but here listen to what he says hear o heavens and give ear o earth for the lord has spoken sons have i reared and brought up so now i'm just going to stop for a second because because in this, in isaiah 66 we're going to be talking also about the child nursing right and so there's yeah. all this imagery that's coming in here sons have i reared and brought up but they have rebelled against me the ox knows its owner the ass its master's crib but Israel does, does not know. My people does not understand. Okay, and so forth. So obviously there's a problem going on here, the beginning of the prophecy of Isaiah. But as all prophets, there are two sides to the prophecy. Remember, a prophet is not one who foretells the future. Well, not primarily, right? His, his primary mission in life is to preach the word of God, to tell the truth. And, and, and the Lord speaks through him. But of course, God exists outside of time. And right. therefore, oftentimes the prophets will speak the truth about God, about things in the past, about things in the future, as being present now. Okay, and that's exactly what Isaiah does. And, and so there's the traditional kind of basic division of Isaiah in chapters 1 through 40 and then 40 following being this. It's not a great distinction because the actually prophecy goes back and forth Sure. in those chapters. But it's like this. Son, make your bed. Son, if you don't make your bed, you're, you're going to be disciplined. Son, if you don't make your bed, 
you're, it's going to get very bad for you. You are going, you're not, you're going to lose your summer vacation. The entire summer's gone. Okay. And then son, please, if you just make your bed, <laughs> you just make your bed, your mother is going to be happy and we're going to get ice cream. Okay. And so kind of this thing about that God's is speaking to his people's warnings and then promises of blessing if they are obedient. But I feel like this kids. was happening just last night, except trying to get the kids to eat their dinner. But yes, exactly. Go yes. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the broccoli. You have to eat your broccoli, okay, before you eat the ice cream. Okay, so Isaiah <laughs> chapter 40 is your mm-hmm. classic ch- chapter. Everybody knows this. Comfort, comfort my people, says the says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Okay. So here's, that's the classic thing that really influences our understanding of chapter 66, which is chapter 66 is part of the restoration prophecy that life is going to be okay. Even though everything went to hell in a handbasket, the Lord will not be outdone. And so there's hope. And and just for a a further context, I'm going to encourage people to go back and read. And that is in second Kings. Second Kings. Okay. So you read chapter 24 and 25 and you can see Jerusalem burn, right? And then the exile is being taken off Babylon, but there's hope. And that hope is found in two places. First of all, that there's a remnant that stays there in the Holy Land. And they're in chapter 25, verse 12. Again, the background of the whole Babylon exile. Why was there a problem taking place in the first place? Because the people of God were not following the Lord and not living in his image and after his likeness. And they actually, the biggest problem was that not only did they set up temples to pagan gods and all these horrible things, child sacrifice in Jerusalem, it was bad. But to make matters worse, they enslaved their brother. And this is a fundamental issue. It's a fundamental break with the covenant with God because the Lord's covenant with us is always a covenant of restoration of, of mankind made in, in his image after his likeness. Of course, the Lord is the one who frees us from slavery. And in, in the life of Israel, if you say, when were you saved, freed from slavery? It's Egypt, right? They're in slavery in right. Egypt. There's multiple times when the people of God find themselves in slavery. But here's the big one. The Lord frees them from slavery so that they can be a light to the nations and go out into the world and bring freedom authentic freedom, first of all, within their own family, and then to the nations around them. But in fact, this is not what happens. And whenever there is this kind of slave master relationship with God's people, the whole thing breaks down very fast. And so we, we, we actually have a witness to this whole thing taking place in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is here on a day when Jerusalem's burned. Jeremiah gets taken off in chains he ends up being freed. He makes friends with the captain of the guard, Nebuzaradan, and he ends up coming back to Jerusalem and he sees Jerusalem burning. So just turn with me very quickly to Jeremiah because it's, I think it's a, he's a helpful witness. I'm going to go to Jeremiah. Well, actually, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you to Jeremiah 34 very quickly. You're going to want to read all of this. And Jeremiah 34 is where it talks about the slavery of what happened, that they were going to release their brother from slavery, and they didn't. And then here we go in chapter 34, verse 17 of Jeremiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty 
everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to the sword. And you want to live in slavery? You live in slavery. Okay, that's it. And so what's interesting is that that group that's left in the Holy Land there in in Second Kings chapter 25 to garden are the poorest of the land. They were the ones they were in slavery. The Lord proclaims a 70 year jubilee in which they can live in the land and and be free of the oppressors, their brothers who are enslaving them and their oppressors go into slavery for 70 years. Jeremiah gives witness to this in his Lamentations, the next book in your Bible, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations chapter one, verse one, Jeremiah comes, he's freed from the chains in which he's being taken off to Babylon. He comes back, he comes over, I believe the Mount of Olives, right over the, the Eastern mm-hmm. Hill where Jesus came on, the, on Palm Sunday and yeah. he drops into Jerusalem and he looks over the city and this is what he sees. Chapter one, verse one of Lamentations, how lonely sits the city. It was full of people. How like the widow has she become? She, okay, notice the language there. Jerusalem is a widow, which means she was unfaithful. Well, not, no, no, widows aren't unfaithful. Annie, don't get ahead of oh, me. Sorry. She was, she lost her husband. Her husband's dead to her. Yeah. yeah. Well, who's her husband? Who's her husband? We're going to see this in just a second. She that was a princess among the cities has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night, tears on her cheeks, among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously, treacherously. But what? A widow has lovers? Yeah. That doesn't sound this too is good. Where the unfaithful. I was reading ahead. <laughs> I know you were reading ahead. Yeah, exactly. Because why? Because she's been unfaithful, right? She's gone after other gods. Yeah. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31 for a moment. And you're going to see, and then we're going to come back to Isaiah. Okay. Chapter 31, I oftentimes believe it is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, but when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was their husband. There you have it right there. So you see this marital relationship, marital uh, uh, imagery. In God's relationship with his people, yes, Jerusalem represents all of God's people in their relationship with the Lord. So Jerusalem is now a widow. Her husband is dead, right, to her. He's not dead, but to her he is. Why? Because she has gone after all these other gods. But there's hope. Right? There's hope that in, in Isaiah chapter 66, and this is why it's so important that we do these studies, Andy, because look at this language now that's used in Isaiah 66. Turn back there with me. Mm-hmm. Verse 10. I'm going to go ahead and read through this again in part, okay, at least. Thus says the Lord, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad because of her. All you who love her, exult, exult with her. So who's, who, who's Isaiah speaking to now at this point? Well, two groups of people, right? The, the group that is remained faithful in the land, but yet that means looking at the burning the and ruins. Temple, yeah. the ruins. And maybe more importantly, Isaiah is speaking to the people that are in Babylon and are, have, have heard what took place. Some of them had already been taken off. Not all of them saw the, the temple being burned. There were multiple exiles that took place over a couple of years, a couple of decades. And Jerusalem burned, right? Which is unbelievable. 
all of you who are, were mourning over her. Oh, that you may suck fully of the milk of her comfort, that you may nurse with delight at her abundant breast. Now, I'm going to stop for a second because we go to Mass on Sunday and we hear this. And I, I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, a modern man, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. But to someone who has some sensibilities, some, you know, depth to their life. Yes. Yeah, well, this exactly. is beautiful. This is yeah. very beautiful. But that's about all we can say is beautiful. Yeah. But we have to realize the context of what's going on. And when we realize the context of what's going on, then now the people of God are described as newborns. Newborns. Yeah. And this helps us tremendously. Because as we look to the New Testament, right at the beginning of the Gospels, proclamation of the good news that all of this warfare that isaiah 40 is truly fulfilled that isaiah 66 has now come about the gospel writers are writing in in, in terms of isaiah right so mm. jesus says to nicodemus nicodemus you cannot enter the kingdom of god unless you are born this is in greek anothen to be born anew Unless you become a newborn. Yeah. yeah. And now Isaiah begins to make sense to us, right? And 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 all of these the way these things are described. Now your husband is restored to you. Yeah. People of God. And you as individuals are now at your mother's breast again, nursing, receiving that milk. Now re remember one last thing. How is the Holy Land, the promised land, described to the people of God coming out of Egypt, out of slavery? going to be described as a land flowing with milk and honey yeah? yeah and so jerusalem is now going to flow again with milk and honey with the rivers of the water of life again and all things are going to be restored and god is going to dwell among his people and this rejoicing too we see that carried over into the responsorial psalm in psalm 66 you know let all the earth cry out to god with joy and this is a, a psalm i think that is recounting the Exodus. I mean, we're we're looking at I think a section in the Psalms that that recounts a lot of salvation history. Yeah, you know, it, it, this is this is important to realize that for God's people, we oftentimes look in when we're reading the Bible in linear terms, right? Mm -hmm. This happened and this happened and this happened because we're modern American history readers, right? But the biblical story. Yes, it can be read in this way. In fact, when we do our studies, Swords and Serpents, that's how I read it, right? I try to put it all in order. Right. But there's another order that can be, can be, can be used, I guess, when we're looking at scripture. That's God's order. He is present before, during, and after as mm -hmm. always present, right? Right. And as he enters into the story of history as he intervenes in mankind, then his intervention, his involvement in history elevates his history to an, the eternal now. And therefore, there's a presence, we can say, or a unity between what is stretched out in history in a linear fashion. There's a unity, all of this, in God's interaction with it. When the fathers of the church are reading scripture, if I'm not making sense, hold with me. When the fathers of the church are reading scripture, they don't read it so much in a linear fashion as in a, a layered fashion. Sure. In, in which the story of the Exodus is the same story of the Babylonian exile. 
yes? Which is the same story of our own exile and restoration, yeah? These are all layers and, and, and revelations of the same divine activity. In fact, Cardinal Jean Danielou. Oh, your boy. My guy, my, you know, I, I got it over here in my stack of books or I don't know, says this exact same, same point. And that is that all of these things reveal to us the same divine activity, namely God's love. And therefore the Exodus, the Babylonian exile and what is going to take place are understood as the same reality. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so the, the people of God returning from Babylon see themselves very much as the people of God returning from Egypt. And then they expect the same things to happen, which is why the Lord teaches and does what he does in the way he does it. Right. He, there's a reason why John the Baptist is down on the Jordan river, calling people to repentance, washing them in the waters, because it's exactly what the people of God did when they left behind them the 40 years of wandering in the desert. Mm -hmm. They saw themselves as the new Israel entering into the new promised land, yeah, which is exactly how the fathers of the church talk about our own baptism. So these layers and so forth. So here, my point is this. Psalm 66 certainly is talking about the time of the Exodus, but the time of the Exodus is being sung in the church as a revelation of what is happening during the time of Isaiah. And what is happening now in the church in the age of the of the christ of the messiah and your baptism and the gift of the holy spirit what's happening shout joyfully to god all the earth sing praise to the glory of his name we just saw the holy spirit descend upon the apostles let all the earth worship him and sing praises to him why because you were in exile you were in slavery no not to egypt not to babylon but to sin you've been freed from the dominion of the evil one through your holy baptism and now it's time to go back to the to, to, you're going back home now to worship the lord yeah he has changed the sea into dry land remember the river the red sea parted the river jordan turned back so that you could cross through safely here now all you who fear the lord will i declare what he has done for me blessed be god who has refused me not my prayer or his kindness okay how beautiful that is that we can then reflect upon God, the, how the Lord interacted with the people of Israel during the time of the Exodus, how he interacted with the people of God during the, the time of the Babylon exile. And now, and now, how is he acting in my life? Oh, that you may suck fully of the milk of her comfort, that you may nurse with delight at her abundant breasts. What's Isaiah talking about? He's talking about the church. Yeah. He's prophesying what we are going to receive. Lo, I will spread prosperity of Jerusalem like a river. Yeah, like a river, like your baptismal waters, yeah? And, uh, and so forth. It's so beautiful. Now I can apply this to myself once I know the history. Go ahead. Well, it's nice to be able to recognize God working in our lives when we know these things. Otherwise, we understand it. Otherwise, when he is working in our lives, we're not going to recognize this we're is the big problem yeah. with biblical illiteracy is that you don't know the, the other person because the way he works you is unknown to you. And so you and so when he does interact in your life, you don't recognize it. And this is why so many people leave the church because they never knew what the Lord looked like in the first place. They didn't recognize his fingerprint on his creation. And therefore they went 
after other things. That's what St. Paul says in Romans chapter one. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we see happening in the gospels too, with these yeah, people absolutely. that have been, you know, not following Jesus all along as we heard last weekend. And now we get to Luke chapter 10, immediately following what we heard for the 13th Sunday in ordinary time. Shall we uh, Let's do it. read what happens this time around? Let's do it. Here we go. This is Luke chapter 10, and we'll start with verse 1 through 12, and then we skip down to verse 17 through 20. At that time, the Lord appointed 72 others whom he sent ahead of him in pairs to every town and place he intended to visit. He said to them, the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Carry no money bag, no sacks, no sandals, and greet no one along the way. Into whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a peaceful person lives there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in the same house and eat and drink what is offered to you for the laborer deserves his payment. Do not move about from one house to another. Whatever town you enter and they welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God is at hand for you. Whatever town you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the dust of your town that clings to our feet, even that we shake off against you. Yet know this, The kingdom of God is at hand. I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom on that day than for that town. The 72 returned rejoicing and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. Jesus said, I have observed Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Behold, I have given you the power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon the full force of the enemy, and nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice because the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, there's, I mean, so much here to unpack, Father, but, you know, to to kind of get the context, I mean, I already mentioned that this is coming right on the heels of, of what we read last week, Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem, but can you give us more of a sense of, of all that's kind of happening in the ministry of Jesus and why he would be sending these people out at this time? Sure. I'm just going to go back to one verse we go to a lot in, is when we're looking at the, this particular time period. And that is right here, Luke chapter 9, verse 53. As he's traveling, as he's been up on Mount Tabor, He was transfigured on Mount Tabor. He comes down and here in verse 53, for the people would not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem, right? This is this biblical idiom that tells us he's on a, he's on a death march, right? He's heading to Jerusalem. Like this is single-mindedness. And so look, look, he's done everything, right? He's walked on water. He's healed the, the blind. He's healed the paralytic. He's raised the dead. He's driven out the demons. He's multiplied the loaves and fishes. He's changed the water into wine. There's nothing he hasn't done. Yeah. And so remember last week, we're talking about these guys that now come to him and are like, 
Lord will follow you anywhere you, you go. Can we just go back home to say goodbye to our parents, right? That was our kind of theme last year, talking about, of course, in light of the church and Pentecost and our mission. Yeah. And Jesus is like, you losers. You've been with me for three years, and now you want to make excuses that you need to go change your socks, you know, at home <laughs> with your mommy. No, too late. It's too late. I was with you for three years because there's, you got to understand the thousands of people that are walking with Jesus now and that the group is divided and he knows exactly what they're talking about. The Pharisees are back there. How are we going to get him? Right. But then there's these, you know, Mamsy, Pamsy, Weasley guys. They're like, Lord, we'll do this for you. And they're like, he's like, no, you won't. I know you're they're talking behind my back. You know, I can hear you. I'm God. Yes. I know what you're saying behind my back. So you're not legitimate disciples. You got the opportunists as well. I'm sure the ones that, you know, he's popular now. So we love you, but. Right, exactly. And then what I, okay. And then what I, there's a part here that is is skipped in the lectionary. That's fundamentally important to kind of help us with this context. And those very verses that are skipped. Okay. Verses. It goes from 12 Uh, to 17. Yeah. 13 13 to 16. Look at 13 to 16. I love this part. Okay. If you know the gospel story. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. What's Tyre and Sidon? Tyre and Sidon is a coastal area. We're going to pull up the map here, right? And then you can see, first of all, you can see Chorazin. You can see Bethsaida. And I haven't gotten down to the reading yet, but we're going to mention Capernaum too. So you, now you see Capernaum. Okay. And then you can see up here Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon is the coastal area that is kind of like leftover old world pagans hmm. they're, they're, And so they're the heathens up there. So of course they're considered to be the unclean, uh, the, 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 the ones that you do not associate with. Right. But here, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, this is called the evangelical triangle. This is where Jesus lived. He just kept traveling around these areas. We go to the Holy land. This is where we stay in this area. Right. And, that's where he had done all his miracles. He says, look, you people, you've seen everything. If Tyre and Sidon, if the, if the godless heathens up there had seen even an ounce of what you saw, they would have converted. But you people have seen everything and you have nothing, no faith. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that helps us make a little context about what's going on. And now he's going to send out the 72 to all these people and give them instructions and so forth. Okay. So there's our context. Okay. Yeah, who are these 72, though? It, it is interesting. The first, this is only in Gospel of Luke that tells us about these guys. Yeah. There's many traditions in the fathers of who these guys are. Okay, like, for example, um, the guys in the road to Emmaus, hmm. okay, were believed to be part of this group. Um, Matthias, who is elected to replace Judas in Acts of the Apostles, traditionally one of sure. these guys. Makes so sense. Like, these are Jesus's disciples. You know, we, we get this idea that Jesus walking around with like three people or 12 people. They're camped out the campfire roasting their marshmallows. And he's talking about being peaceful, right? <laughs> Woe to you, Corazine. <laughs> You're going to hell in a handbasket. You know, Jesus was a fiery preacher. He literally and- said that to Capernaum. You shall be brought down to Hades. Exactly. You're going to hell in a handbasket. Exactly. <laughs> So, so uh, who are these 72? So he's Jesus. Of course, this is like natural, right? Jesus got his close, close friends. Mm-hmm. And then he's got his extended friends. 
Mm-hmm. And then he's got the whole crowds that are around him. And then he's got the godless heathens that are still walking around, like waving a Jesus flag, but they're total fakes. Right. Sure. But these 72 are really the ones that are hanging out with him, learning from him on a daily basis. They're traveling with him and so forth like that. You got the guys that are just like going to the rock concert because they want to see the party. But then you got guys that are at home buying the records. Right. Right, And they're like actually listening to the music, you Mm -hmm. know, and and then we can talk about the 12 where the guys are actually learning how to play the guitar like their guy does. Right. So, okay. So these are are the guys that appreciate what Jesus is saying and trying to change their lives and, and so forth like that. But some have pointed out, some have pointed out, there's an interesting parallel here that Luke is writing. Remember, Luke writes Acts of the Apostles. Right. So Luke is writing in in terms of what is about to come. Remember, look look back at chapter 9, verse 51. Chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be received up. Hmm. You see, so Jesus, uh, so Luke is writing about Jesus in terms of what Luke knows is coming. And well, he's writing about it after the event. So, but he's telling the story in terms of what's coming. And so the 72 also may be a point like this. Some have pointed this out that Luke is, of course, going to, re, to write Acts of the Apostles, the day of Pentecost, and the, the unity of God's people, and how the languages and the misunderstanding because of languages that happened because of the Tower of Babel is reversed on Pentecost day. I'm sure many of our listeners have heard about this before that, mm-hmm. that learn, understand Pentecost in terms of a reversal of Babel. Yeah. Sure. But what's interesting, if we go back there to Genesis, go back with me very quickly. Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10, one of my favorite chapters in, in the old Testament, right? It's the genealogy. <laughs> These are the generations descended from Noah. <laughs> that's right. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them out of the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, da, 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 da. and now this whole genealogy of all of this, all of the descendants of Noah, right? And if you count these fathers of the families, there are 72 of them here in chapter 10. And what happens in chapter 11? Babel. Tower of Babel right? Mm-hmm. The dividing. So, so Luke may be referring to 72 disciples to help us see that what is about to come is going to be a restoration of a pre-Tower of Babel wow. life. Yeah. Yeah. And there's one other one, which I actually think is a little bit more helpful. And that is in the book of Numbers, Numbers 11, chapter 11, Numbers 11, verse 16 i see okay give us a reading annie all right it says and the lord said to moses gather for me 70 men of the elders of israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you and i will come down and talk with you there and i will take some of the spirit which is upon you and put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. This is okay. This is why I actually wow. think that this reference to 72, or in this case, 70 elders, is maybe even a better, a better background 
in Luke and maybe more what Luke's pointing to than even the Genesis and it could be both. But here again, we have to context, right? Go back to chapter 11, verse one. This is God's people traveling during the time of the Exodus. Mm -hmm. And what does chapter 11, verse one say? And the people complained in their hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Okay. Do you, do you see this, Andy? Go, go, going back to Luke and what's going on is that there's Big all bunch of, of whiners. Bunch of whiners. They're all complaining. I, I, and actually, this we have to do this. Okay. Look at verse, verse, read verse four, chapter 11, verse four. Okay. It says, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. This sounds like this, my toddlers. This, this There's nothing manna. to eat. You know, okay, we have to read <laughs> nothing one more but verse. this miraculous bread. We have to read one more verse. Okay. This is really fun. And now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like bdellium. Bdellium is one of the jewels, one of the gems. It's mentioned in the, in the book of Genesis, the creation account that the rivers flowed out to these lands where there was bdellium. So it's a gem. So the beauty, the man is described in terms of the beauty of paradise and the people went out gathering it and more and they make cakes of it. The taste of the cakes was it baked with oil? Okay. In another place, it talks about it tastes like honey. So please, for God's sake. Okay. Really? It's, this is not like, this is not like prime matter. It's not porridge. Okay. This, and so anyways, we're getting way far afield Rule. from the gospel of Luke. But the point <laughs> is that, that notice what happens now with multiple things. Luke is right in terms of the story of Elijah yeah. and telling Jesus's story in terms of Elijah, right? And now these 70 are called together because the people are complaining and Moses needs a little help to be able to minister to these people. So he ordains 70 guys to go out and do his work for him mm. in the midst of the complaining, right? Wow. And that giving the sharing of the gift, then in terms of the story of Elijah, remember Elijah is giving a double portion to his disciple, Elisha. So yeah. now Moses and Elijah are similar and no, and now let's go back to Luke. Now let's go back to Luke chapter. Uh, we'll look at chapter nine, the story of the transfiguration. And verse 33, who shows up on Tabor? Moses and Elisha. Moses and Elisha. So Luke is really showing you Jesus as the both the new Elijah and the new Moses. And now he sends these 72 out to these godless heathens who are just a bunch of complainers. And now he tells them how to go out to them. Yeah. Can you talk about these instructions? They're kind of intense. What part of them, Annie? Well, I mean, particularly the part about shaking the dust from the feet, you know? Yeah. That's like, whoa. Okay. Well, okay. What does that Let's, mean? There's a couple of things he says, right? First of all, he says, don't take anything, right? Yeah. He says, go out and they're going to feed you. Don't mm -hmm. take any food with you. Nothing. Right. Again, in terms of Elijah, go back with me very quickly to first Kings chapter 17, first Kings chapter 17. I should really just put a bookmark in first Kings chapter 17 <laughs> for how often we, we go, go back there. to that particular chapter. <laughs> look at, look at this. The, this is the story of Elijah. 
And it's all about the, how the Lord's providing for him in verses uh, one through seven. But in verse eight, then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which is, which belongs to Sidon. Notice Luke points out it'd yeah. be better off for Tyre and Sidon. They would have converted, right? Well, Elijah goes to these godless heathens. And what does he find there? Behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring him, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. You see this? So, so Jesus is giving the instructions to his disciples. that he's, They are now going to live like Elijah lived. Yeah, they're going to be totally dependent upon the Lord. And though they're going to be hunted and they're going to be hated, nevertheless, the Lord is going to work miracles at their hands, right? Now, then he gives, then he talks about this shaking the dust from your feet. And I've got a little quote here from St. Ephraim. St. Ephraim the Syrian says this, shake off the dust of your feet, shows that he will require vengeance on those who receive the disciples poorly. The disciples will throw back on these people that very dust which adhered to them from the path. They will return it back on them so that these might learn that those who pass through their paths will return by them. Since these received the dust of the just, they will merit the vengeance of the just unless they repent. Only their dust defiled them, not their mire. It will be easier for Sodom because the angels who went there did not perform a sign in Sodom, but made Sodom itself a sign for creation. I, I just, you know, there's much to say Nephron's awesome. I mean, there's much to, to, to meditate upon there, but there's another aspect of this whole dust from the feet, Annie, that I can't, I've never found in a commentary, in a commentary, but I'm going to share it with you because I think it's, there, there must be something here. And oftentimes when I'm doing Bible study and I'm, and I'm meditating upon these things, I might come to some, some insight and then usually I got to wait for five years, 10 years, 15 years. And eventually I find it. The fathers of the church said it already because they, they, they were like, you know, I'm not going to discover stuff that they didn't discover. Right. Sure. So anyways, but I haven't found it yet, but I'm going to share it with you. Um, and it's, and it's this, when we think about the dust of the ground immediately should come to our mind, the story of Genesis. Mm. Man was formed from the dust, right? Yeah. And let's turn back there very quickly. Man was formed from the dust in chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. But of course, when he turned his back on the Lord, he received not life, but death, right? So now man is separated from his source of life. He now begins to return to the dust, hmm. being bereft of the life of God. Yeah. And so there's two times when that dust is then mentioned again here in the condemnation of the serpent. Verse chapter three, verse 14. Chapter three, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed be you above all the cattle and above all the wild animals upon your belly. You shall go and dust you shall eat. Okay. So there's this, there's this imagery of, of man returning to dust and the serpent consuming that, which is lacking the life of God. Wow. And then verse 17. 
And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which you, I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because you toil, you shall eat of it all the days. Okay. And so forth in your toil. So, so here's this good, this, this reference to this, the ground, the dust, then so forth like that. And ultimately it's going to come to fruition chapter four, verses one through three, right here. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a tiller of the ground. Hmm. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Hmm. Right. And remember, Cain's offerings can be rejected. So, so look, I'm not going to go too far with this because I have, again, I haven't found it in the fathers of the church. There's something there. And, and now we have in, in Luke this instruction to when someone rejects the work of God, he then has kind of thrown on him, as St. Ephraim says, thrown on him the dust of the ground, which is cursed, wow. right? And that is that life separated from God, that light with this, where the serpent roams. Now that house is under the dominion of the devil instead of the dominion of God. Wow. I mean, that's depressing. Um, <laughs> can we, uh, can we talk about uh, we the, the end of this gospel here? Because it is a really joyful end to it. They return rejoicing, saying the demons are subject to them because of his name. Jesus says, I've observed Satan fall like lightning from the sky and, and tells them, you know, do not rejoice because the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I'm just wondering, do you think that there's a connection there with the, the first reading just to kind of bring this full circle here? Oh, uh, that, yes, I think, I think so for sure. And it's certainly look at, look at, well, look at the Psalm 66, the response to a Psalm shout joyfully to God. Right. Yeah. But then in Isaiah chapter 66, at the end there, you shall see this, your heart shall rejoice, rejoice. in your body, you know, and your body's flourish like the grass. So, oh, that, you know, certainly again, again, remember the gospel writers are writing in terms of the people of Babylon, uh, the Babylon exile in terms of the Exodus and so forth. And so certainly using imagery like this, that now is the restoration of all things. So I don't know. And these are the ones yeah. enjoying the fruits of it in, yes. you know, this first exactly. round of fruits of it anyway. And just to, to close out the conversation, as we look at the epistle from, from St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, I mean, Paul says something similar to what Jesus says, and I'm sure you have a lot to say about Paul's letter to the Galatians, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, we need to rejoice because our names are, are written in heaven. And, and Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, echoing that, that sentiment from, from Jesus. Yeah. And, and well, let, let, let's read, let's read the passage. Okay. okay. Yeah, I'd be happy six, to. 14 through 18. Go ahead. Brothers and sisters, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither does circumcision mean anything, nor does uncircumcision, but only a new creation. Peace and mercy be to all who follow this rule, 
and to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one make troubles for me, for I bear the marks of Jesus on my body. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Okay, so let's, again, the context of Galatians, we talk about this a lot at the ICC, and that is that St. Paul is talking to the Judaizers, right? That's the first foremost when we're reading this. So yes, we can make all sorts of spiritual applications. And the first one is you got a bunch of guys running around saying you ought to be circumcised before you become a Christian, before you're baptized. And St. Paul is saying, no, you don't have to be circumcised before you're baptized because circumcision ultimately is a foreshadowing, is a preparation for, it's a sign of the covenant with God, preparation for that real circumcision, which is going to take place in which your old life is going to be cut off and you are going to be a new creation, right? So let's just, let's bring in here Isaiah 66, the babe nursing at the breast of Jerusalem, right? And this new life, why do we have to be crucified to the world? Well, and, and, the, and the world crucified to me, because ultimately there must be a, a resurrection that takes place. And I, I say this a lot during the Pascha season, no one is going to rise from the dead who has not first died with Christ, right? You can't rise from the dead unless you first died. So your old life has to die, it's be gone. And then you can rise to this newness of life, this new way of life, which is the life of Jesus Christ. That life of Jesus Christ is a crucified life in that the, cru- the, the cross stands as a double sign, the hatred of the world, but the love of God, right? Yeah. It's what Jesus did with what they did to him that matters. And that is he poured out his life for the life of the world. This is what we are called to in the church. It is what St. Paul is calling the Galatians to. It's what we see in the 72 going out to continue the mission of, uh, of Christ. It's what we see in the prophet Elisha receiving a double portion or the 70 around Moses. We're going to go out and do the ministry of God. Yes. And that, that life is a new, it's a new way of life, right? A portion of Moses's spirit is placed upon. So they have, now you have 70 Moseses, right? Or you have Elisha with the double, uh, double spirit of Elijah, right? You had Jesus revealed as a new Elijah and a new Moses in the gospel of Luke, because not that linear, but the layering that we talked about earlier, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. And all of this is who God is and God is love. And now his disciples are called to go out. It doesn't mean they're not going to face challenges and difficulties. They're going to be, in terms of St. Paul, the world will be crucified to me and I to the world. This is the new life of the Christian. And yet through all of that, this new life, it gives us the possibility of the life of the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Father, the looking at this, I mean, just in light of what has been happening here, I mean, you talk about layer upon layer upon layer and all is present to God. I mean, we just saw the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And I mean, even, I mean, since May, when, when the decision was, was leaked, I mean, we've been seeing violence, we've been seeing threats against Christians, against Supreme Court justices, and all of the like. I mean, talk about this idea, going back to the gospel for a second. I mean, Jesus says, behold, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we certainly do feel that today as Christians. Uh, absolutely. Annie. And, and that's the, you know, we, this is, this is the mystery of our salvation. And we shouldn't be surprised when, when life 
is proclaimed, right? When the 72 go out to do the ministry of Christ, it is to bring healing. Why are they going out? Yeah, They're going out to, to do the ministry of Jesus Christ. And yet they're going to be rejected. They're going to be hated. So because when life is proclaimed, the evil one attacks always, always. Don't be surprised. It's not a surprise that when, when regarding the uh, the issue of, of abortion and this Roe versus Wade business and the Dobbs decision, it's no surprise that the evil one is going to try to strike and it's always going to have the same same you know fingerprints and calling card, which is death. Yeah, yeah, always. He has to destroy life because life is of God. And if he can destroy that, he can he can destroy the revelation of God on earth. And so this is now given to us as we are all called through our baptism to die to our old self, to leave Babylon behind, to leave Egypt behind, to have this newness of life, which God has given us and to fear not what might, what might come for the Lord will be our sustenance. Just as, as Elijah went to that, the, the widow um, in Zarephath. So the Lord's going to provide for us, no matter what difficulties that we face and challenges the world. The only question is, are we willing to go out? Are we willing to go out? And bring the good news of Christ to all who we meet, to all that God sends us, every person that God sends us to, to be an evangelical witness of what the Lord has done in our life. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.